and get a little more specific about some things. So what I'm going to do is make the introduction very, very short, because I want to get to the nitty-gritty. We're going to talk about molecular machines in this particular class. That is something about which Darwin knew nothing. Are you listening? Charles Darwin knew nothing about what I'm talking about tonight when he presented his theory about how all life evolved by natural selection. I think in some ways he could be forgiven for missing a lot of things. Because a whole lot of that for him was just simply unknown. I do not believe, folks, that modern-day scientists can miss this and be forgiven. Now, if they repent, they can be forgiven. But you heard the quotes here at the end of Todd's lesson. If your a priori position is, we cannot have God in science, then you're going to miss it. I want to look at molecular machines tonight because in my mind, it's as if God has opened the floodgates of information from science and is saying to us, what are you going to do with this? And folks are still denying it in the face of this. But what we want young people to understand, and young folks, you stay with us tonight and tomorrow night, throughout this weekend. You do not need to be afraid of science because the deeper you examine in science, the more powerful is the evidence that there had to be a creator. And it is more powerful than ever in the history of mankind. And that's what I hope to get across. So let's start with a, ba a passage of Scripture. If this lecture were taking place in a science lecture hall on college campuses, which I've done many times, there would be no Bible used at all. I'm pausing on purpose. I hope you don't take offense at that. But science is not built on reading a text from a revelation from God. Science is built on observing the natural world. And if you're going to talk to a scientist and you quote scripture to him, you've just turned him off. Because the Bible is a revelation by God directly to mankind. It's not the way science works. But we're in a church building and most of the folks here believe in God and you're Bible believers, as am I. And Sunday morning, I'm going to preach a lesson from the Bible, okay? But tonight, in this lecture, this class, we're going to talk about God's other book. Because he has another book. It's testimony from the natural world. And the Bible says that's the case. So Romans 1.20 very clearly says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What the Bible teaches is there's sufficient evidence from the natural world to convince you there's a God. 
And how is that? By observing the things that are made. When you observe nature and you see design everywhere, which you do, you should conclude there's a designer that's beyond anything nature can do. But if you're going to say, no, we can't have that. Now look, folks, when you get finished with science, you will have not proven there's a God beyond any question. But you will have certainly pointed with powerful circumstantial evidence. That's the best explanation. Are you with me? Okay. That's what Romans 1 teaches. Therefore, I'm going to say to you, I'm setting this book aside until the very end again tonight, because that's not where we're going for our evidence. We're going to God's other book. Well, let's talk about the natural world. Again, a little brief introduction. In the early 1800s, Charles Darwin took this class. I don't know if you knew that. Todd, but the book Natural Theology by William Paley was a common course in the 1800s. Charles Darwin studied Paley's book. And the title says, Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity Collected from the Appearances of Nature. And he starts the book with the watchmaker argument. If you found a watch lying around, would you say, isn't it interesting what nature did? No, you'd be saying, who did that? That's amazing. Wouldn't you? think so. And so he then goes from there and says, nature's much more complicated than a watch. So it's natural to believe there's a God behind what we see. So that was a commonly connected course back in those days. In addition to that, most scientists in those early days of the 17 and 1800s were believers in God. And they saw no conflict between science and that. But from the mid-1800s to the present time, science has become the enemy of God. And it's partly because of folks who've taken the position, you can't let God's foot in the door, you're just leaving science. And they're as wrong as they can be. But that is a common conception. So let me add to this introduction, this little book by Charles, by Richard Dawkins, The Blind Watchmaker, already referenced tonight. I'm turning to page 5, in which he quotes from William Paley's book. The watchmaker of my title, The Blind Watchmaker, is from a famous treatise by the 18th century theologian William Paley, the best-known exposition of the argument from design. And it's always been the most influential arguments for the existence of God. And may I pause there a moment and say to you, I believe the argument from design is the most powerful argument from nature for the existence of God. And so that's what I'm going to use throughout this entire series. Design points to God. Here's what he says. It's a book I greatly admire, for in his own time the author succeeded in doing what I'm struggling to do now. He had a point to make, he passionately believed in it, and he spared no effort to ram it home clearly. I like to read that because I do a lot of ramming home. And I'm okay with that because he certainly does it for 350 pages to try to convince you that the watchmaker is blind. 
So I make no apology for yelling a little bit every now and then and ramming it home. So he says a little bit later on page 5, Paley's argument is made with passionate sincerity and is informed by the best biological scholarship of his day, but it is wrong, gloriously and utterly wrong. The analogy between a telescope and an eye, between a watch and a living organism is false. And here's the quote, all appearances to the contrary... The only watchmaker in nature is the blind forces of physics, albeit deployed in a very special way, acted on by natural selection. And he proceeds to say, natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered, has no purpose in mind. It is the blind watchmaker. So, ladies and gentlemen... This book proposes that everything you say that, see that looks like it's designed was not. The watchmaker was blind, had no purpose, and wasn't, did not have you in mind either. And so he takes 350 pages to come out and convince you that's the case. I'm here to tell you he is so far off it's beyond belief. Because he is blinded himself. And I'm sorry for him. But I don't want you to be. So, I say it's time to revisit the argument from design. And what's amazing to me is, I'm not 100 years old yet, but I'm old. I'm 77. And I have been living in the most exciting time in the history of mankind in terms of what we know about living things. And so have you. You've lived through it whether you know it or not. We know more about how living things work than ever in the history of mankind. And the design argument is stronger today than it was 100 years ago. And that's what I want to get across. So there have been three great scientific discoveries in the 20th century that all speak to design. One is the universe has a beginning. Did you know that many scientists in the 18 and 1900s and the early 2000s believed that the universe is eternal, has no beginning? You can't say that anymore. Now, that's not my subject. I'm skipping over that one. But there's powerful evidence from the natural world that was a beginning. And second, that the universe is fine-tuned to support life on Earth. Oh, my. We could spend several days on that one. Fine-tuned to support life on Earth. And there's thousands of things I could present to you. That's another time. The third big thing that's been discovered is everywhere you look, there's a massive amount of information. That's part of what Todd was talking about. Everywhere you look. Folks, we have zero information that information comes from anywhere but intelligence. That's the answer. That's just plain fact. So how did all this information get in living things? It's everywhere. 
There are an untold number of molecular machines and complex processes in every living thing, that all of which functions based on intelligence, information. How did that happen? The most reasonable explanation for that is intelligent design, not natural causes. Natural selection, folks, has become the god of Richard Dawkins and a lot of other folks. So I want to tune in to number three here tonight, molecular machines. Well, you heard the quote from Darwin already. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And I firmly believe if Darwin were here in this century, he would never have made up his theory. Because he pretty openly criticized his own theory in his book. And this was one of them. Well, I'd like to present this one as a complex system, which could not have happened by small stages over long periods of time. And if it couldn't, then Darwinism is out. Because see, Darwin said, and so do most folks who believe in that theory, nature hates leaps. You have to have little small changes over long periods of time. Folks, that's what Darkens believes. He thinks anything that's complicated can be broken down into something simpler. And if that's still too complicated, you just break it down and make it simpler. And if that's still too complicated, you break it down more. He's the ultimate reductionist. You can reduce anything complicated to something that isn't that complicated. It's, it's simple enough that it could have just happened. And then you add up all of those and you get really complicated things. That's the bottom line. And I would like to present to you the cell. You tell me, folks, how the cell in its magnificence came to be by small changes over long periods of time. It's a just-so story. So while we're here on this slide, we've got to take just a minute. I don't know how well you saw, you've studied your cell, but Todd talked tonight a little bit about the cell membrane. See this membrane here? That's just the thing that surrounds it. That in itself is about 16 lectures. You see this little blow up here? It's part of the complexity of that plasma membrane. There's all kinds of stuff going on in that membrane, just like he talked about a while ago including some machines. Down here in the nucleus, where all the DNA is, the major portion of the DNA is inside here, there's all kinds of stuff going on in there. There's all kinds of bodies out here, uh, ribosomes and peroxisomes and Golgi complex, lysosomes, mitochondrions. Every one of those has complex stuff going on all the time. And what you didn't know, class, is that in most of those, there's little machines doing stuff down in there to make it run at the molecular level. So remember that when I get down into one of these details here. They're all over the place in that cell, doing stuff all the time. You see, we could call the cell a self-replicating nanoscale robot. So, Mr. Darwin, did that happen by small-scale changes by natural selection acting on natural variation over millions of years? 
I say that is the most just-so story I've ever heard of. Self-replicating because it can reproduce itself. Nanoscale because cells are quite small. You know how big a nanometer is, class? It's one billionth of a meter. So a meter sticks about this long. Imagine dividing that up into one billion parts, and that's a nanometer. That's the scale you're working on in a cell. Nanometers. If you took a hair, you want to pull out a hair? No, don't do that. If you're like me, you can't afford to lose any. Take a hair out. A nanometer, you could put 50,000 of them inside that hair, side by side. Okay? It's small. And a robot, because its activities are carried out unconsciously and automatically by precision molecular machines that follow ordinary physical laws. All the time. Every cell in your body. And you have trillions just in your body. So what's a molecular machine? A natural device on the molecular scale with few exceptions made of proteins. You can't know how important proteins are, folks. Critically important. Able to convert chemical energy to produce linear and rotary motion as well as controlling many biological functions. Almost everything in the cell requires some kind of machine that's acting. So I want to give you an introduction to few. Enough to, I hope, whet your appetites. Myoglobin is one of the earliest ones discovered. It's for oxygen storage in the muscles. It's 153 amino acids long in the human. In the whale, it's bigger. But it helps carry oxygen in your muscles. But it's a molecular machine. We could show you a picture of it. We know exactly what its structure is. Down inside of it is a heme molecule. But I'm not talking about that one tonight. How about the kinesin and the dynine walkers? They are for cargo movement. You work in a warehouse, you got to move stuff from here to there. You think that happens in the cell? Yes. The stuff's got to be moved around the cell all the time. Somebody's got to move it. So you call on a kinesin or a dynine, and they move stuff. They're also involved in cell division, which I'm going to show you in just a moment. But here's a little picture. This is a cartoon, folks. This is not how it actually looks. But here's a little kinesin walker. It's a little protein here. And he walks along microtubules, which is like the highway for little guys. And he can carry immense things. I mean, he can carry things a thousand times as heavy as he is. And carry them across the cell in various places. So they have little stories for children about kinesis and walkers. You can go look it up. It's fun because it talks about the day in a kinesis and walker. It's fun. What I want to talk to you about is some of the biomedical animations that this guy's made, Drew Berry. You ought to write him down and go look him up because he's done all kinds of fascinating things. I'm going to use some of them.
in this series. But they're all over the place. He's a professional animator. And what he does is he makes cellular stuff at the nano level come alive, because you can't see it. So he makes it come alive. So we're going to use some of Mr. Drew Barry's stuff, like this next one. You see up here the credits given, Wee TV by Drew Barry. <laughs> All right. So class, don't lose me now. Everybody's eyes up here. What you're going to see right now is this cell right here, divide. And the first part of this animation is a live picture of what actually happens. Because you can watch this through a microscope. So it's actually a picture of what's happened as a cell divides. May I pause just a moment here? Did you know, class, that every minute in your body you have 40,000 dead skin cells? You just lost 40,000 times 30 minutes since you've been sitting here. They're dead. Did you know that's a good thing for your skin? Because over a millimeter's level of your skin all over your whole body, which is your largest, largest organ, you know that, right? By the way, we're coming back to this on Sunday night when we talk about the immune system. In that millimeter space, you've got a bunch of layers of skin, and as the skin is produced down at the bottom, by the method I'm going to show you, mitosis, as it's reproduced, it grows up to be a really powerful protection for you. And the top several layers of your skin are dead cells that have spread out and interlocked so they protect you. Nothing wants to go get in there. That's all thrown in free of charge. You lost 40,000 cells in the last minute of skin cells. And how are they reproduced by this method? Let's watch it. So here we go. You ready back there, IT guys? Okay. All right, here we go. You can see it's starting to separate here. Stop right there for just a second. This is all the nuclear material, the chromosomes down inside the nucleus, that are splitting apart. It's a very complicated process. Todd teaches this. Mitosis, where a cell becomes two cells. And it's the exact reproduction. And it's amazingly accurate. Keep going. Okay, so it's keeping on going and looks to eventually it pulls apart. See this? And this is an exact copy of this. And then it closes up. And you stop right there. And you got two cells where you had one. Class. May I offer my apology to every living cell for the miserable job I'm doing because there's so many other things that are involved here. There are about seven phases to that process. Each one of them is amazingly complicated. And it just happens, and now you have two. But if we want to go back now, let's go. He's going to redo this, and we're going to start over. And we now want to get down inside where you can't see it. 
So instead of looking at the whole thing, we're now going to take this piece of it right here. Stop right there. This is a piece of the chromosome. It's one piece. And can you see it's already copied here? There's two copies of it. We ought to spend an hour talking about how it makes two copies. But there it is. There's two copies. And you'll notice that there's a connection down here. We're going to talk about this because down in the nano level, this is what's going on to make those things split apart and make two cells. And you may think I'm not going to get back to kinines and dinines, but I am. So stay with me. So we're going to focus in now, and this is all part of Mr. Barry's work, because you can't see this with your eyes, but he believes firmly, and I do too, this is what's happening. So here we go. We're going to close in now on this metaphase chromosome, making two copies of your DNA. Here are two copies, and you see right there this, this space that looks kind of reddish right here. That's called the kineticore. Stop right there. This is called the kineticore because that's where the action is. Kinetics is action. And this is core because it's central to what's going on here. And coming out of it are a bunch of microtubules, which are like molecular highways that are being constructed. Your body's doing this all the time. It's making highways so these guys can walk on it and move stuff around. So here we are, microtubules, keep going. We're now going to get down here a little closer. Stop right there. And what he calls it here is a giant molecular machine that controls chromosome movement. You see, class, you're looking at a machine here that allows that chromosome to divide to make two cells out of one. Do you think this is critical? It's only life or death. You don't have this, you're dead. So what's happening down here? Let's go down further. Keep going. We're going to close in now here on the kineticore. And again, this is um, an animation, but it sure makes it come alive. So now let's move in here to the kineticore and let's look more carefully. Here we are. We're closing in on it. Stop right there. You know these colors are made up, right? <laughs> but they make it come alive. Kineticores are not bright red. But it's okay. Because there's so much activity on there, it ought, they ought to be bright red. There are hundreds of proteins doing things in here right now, including building these microtubules. What did I do? Man, I messed you up back there, something good. Can you get me back to where we were? <laughs> Sorry, I hit the wrong button. That was not your fault. It was mine, wasn't it? Am I taking blame? <laughs> I will. Let's get back to where we were. <laughs> I'm so sorry. There's a pointer on here right above where you forward the thing. Not good. Bad design. <laughs> All right, keep going. All right, we were going through this. You remember everything I said about this, right? And now we're closing in on the kineticore right here. And we're going to watch what happens as we get in close. 
because what's happening down here is going to allow us to separate these things eventually. So you've got proteins working in here at a rate of, just amazing rate of speed. And first thing, one of the most important things is building these highways. Can you see right over here? They're building this step by step, making it longer. Pause right there for just a minute. At the other end of this microtubule, it's tearing it down at the same time. Just like every government worker, right? <laughs> you build your highways and then you tear them up. <laughs> In this case, it's critically important, folks, when you build the highways to get rid of them. Can you imagine why? If all you had was microtubules continually building in there, you'd have a cell so stuffed with highways you couldn't move. So it has to tear them down. That's another machine over there doing that. All right, so it's building them. Keep going now. And there's a lot of other stuff going on in here, including tension timing. So what you're going to see on this visual is the red, which means stop, right, is going to turn into green, which means, you can say it, go. But it doesn't really turn green. But that's a nice picture. So here we go. And I hope you're watching carefully. Do you see all that stuff going on? And now it turns green because it's time to go and watch. Now, we're going to start seeing the Dynian walkers start moving down this tubule. You see these guys? They're carrying proteins. Stop right there. They're carrying proteins down the microtubule, which allow the timing to take place just when you want to, and allow the process to continue by which you're going to split that thing apart. No dynines, no split. Keep going now. Do you see there's some guys walking the other way, like that? Stop. Those guys are the kinesins. And in case you don't know, kinesins usually walk that way when dynians are walking this way. Don't ask me why. That's just the way it is. But kinesins are carrying stuff, too, to go back over here. That's also important. And then you see these little blue guys here? That's another separate protein that keeps those walkways properly positioned so all this stuff can go on. Keep going. Stop right there. See how slow this guy is? He's kind of slow. He has to walk around. But he's carrying heavy stuff. The kinesin's fast. He's going that way. But all of this is happening, folks, down inside every time a cell divides. Keep going. Don't you love it? <laughs> Stop right there. Do you know I could tell you the chemistry of how he does that walking right there? We know exactly the chemistry that makes that thing do that. It's a plan, folks. Keep going. Now we're back to the larger screen. And here's the kinetic core, and it's getting ready. And you see these microtubules, they're working away, and these workers are running up and down. And you don't see any of that, but it's going on. And now they split apart. And this particular part of the chromosome, like all the rest of them, there it is. And now you have a little better picture of what's going on in there. In every cell division that takes place. 
about you, but I'm in awe. And I want to tell you what I prayed this morning. As I do every time before I'm privileged to do something like this. My prayer was, dear God, give me the capacity somehow to make people understand how amazing God is. Because you live in a time, class, when we've never been more able to glorify the majesty and the wonder of the God who made us. There's never been a greater time. And to listen to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the new atheists, you'd think the case for God is over. And it's the exact opposite. And it infuriates me the way they do things. And then there's Dr. James Tour. And you just got to give me a few minutes with this man. He's a Messianic Jew. And you can go to his website and he will tell you you need to learn about the resurrection of Christ. Because that will convince you Christ is the Son of God. He is a professor of nanoengineering at Rice University, chemistry, material science, and nanoengineering. He's an international expert. In fact, in my humble opinion, he's the best nanoengineer in the world. That's just me talking. But there's some evidence to support it. He's done all kinds of fascinating things with nanoengineering. That means engineering down at the level of cells. Let's see, what else do I want to say here? I want to tell you that he decided to try to mimic what nature does. And among other things, he decided, let's make a nano car. A car made out of one molecule. So it's at the nano level. So I've got a little article here. It's an interview of Dr. Tour in which he talks about his nano car. And by the way, he's made a bunch of them. He said a nanocar is a single molecule. You see this guy right here? That's one molecule. It has a chassis, all of this. It has axes, and it has wheels. You see those? And it has a motor right here. He said you can park 50,000 of these across the diameter of a human hair. They're tiny cars. We make a billion, billion of them at a time. Kind of like your body does. Tour's team recently won a nano car race in Toulouse, France. I mean, how do you race a nano how do you race a nano car? Well, if you look at these pictures over here, here's pictures of the thing moving. I mean, you can see it moving under a particular type of a microscope. You can't see it visually. But they did have a nano car race. And I'm very happy to report to you that there's the guy that he raced. And you see this little engine here? It's driven by light, and it whirls around and makes the thing move across a gold foil. And so they had a nano car race. Lots can be said about that. But here are the results. 
<laughs> Dr. Tour and his team from Rice University along with the University of Graz won the whole thing by going 150 nanometers in one and a half hours on silver. That's 100 nanometers per hour. You say, oh, that's enough. And a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. That's like moving nowhere. <laughs> but for a nano car, that's incredible. Because look at what the next best guy did. The Swiss team from the University of Basel went 133 in six and a half hours. They were only running five hours behind the other guys. And everybody else from France, Germany, and Japan, and the Ohio University in the U.S. all quit before it was over. They allowed them to go 30 hours, and they all quit because they couldn't get the thing to work. So this is not simple, class. You listening to me? Making nanocars is no small matter. And here's a picture of the first model. When he'd made the first one, it would run 1.8 revolutions per hour, that little motor thing there. 1.8 revolutions per hour. You turn it almost two times in an hour. That's like nothing. You're going nowhere. And that's what the other guys were having a problem with. The motors weren't working. So he went through a process and built a second generation, and it now revolves three million times per second. Eyes up here. What did they do in model number two that was different? You probably can't see it. Look over here. Here's the rotor. There are two cyclic molecules. Those are carbons. And here's another one with a sulfur stuck in there. Do you see that? The only difference between this model and that one is that sulfur has been taken out, and you now have a five-carbon molecule there. And with that change, this rotor turns three million rotations per second. Now, how did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Dr. Rice and his team went back and started from the beginning and engineered it all over again. There's a point to that. Dr. Tour says the nanocars built by the Rice University team were much smaller and far less complex than the Kinesians and the Dynes walkers and other molecular machines common in every living cell. He's humble enough to say what we did was nothing compared to what nature does every second. Nothing. The Rice team's been working on nanocars for over 20 years, and they barely got it to move 150 nanometers in an hour and a half. Every molecular machine in living cells is much larger, much more complex, and much more sophisticated than what we've built. And by the way, did you hear what I said? What we built. Not what happened by natural selection. Here's the taste of how much work intelligence it took to produce the nano car. Everybody's eyes should be up here glaring carefully. After they won that race in April of 2017, everybody there said, would you share us the information for your building your cars? Because we're not doing as well as you are, obviously. So he wrote an article. I'm sure he already had it in the works. There's one page of the stuff it took to produce the nano car. That's page one. 
I'll give you a little time to peruse that. And this is page two. And what you don't get, class, is that's nothing, because the whole article published in Tetrahedon Magazine in May of 2017, one month after they won the race, is 281 pages long with stuff like that in it. Now, what am I saying, class? That's what it took for a human to build one nano car that worked pretty well over a period of 20 years. And we sit around and say, isn't it fascinating what those molecular machines are doing instantly in every living thing all the time, much more complicated than this, because natural selection, acting on natural variation, produces it. You talk about a just-so story. If you believe that, i got a bridge to tell you folks. But we haven't even gotten started about machines. So I hope you'll bear with me just a little longer. I'm going to give you the fastest treatment of a bacterial flagellum in the history of mankind. Here's another movie. <laughs> this one by the Japanese. The bacterial flagellum is the most studied molecular motor in the world. And part of the reason is they're found in E. coli's. And you know about E. coli? It can kill you. It's a bacteria that can kill you. But there are a lot of strains of E. coli that you absolutely have to have. And they're swimming around in your intestines right now while you speak. In fact, there are millions of them swimming inside of you right now. And they have a motor in them that drives a flagellum that lets them swim. And he talked about that, didn't he? So here we go. Here's a bacterium with just one flagellum, and they do pretty well. But the ones we're interested in is these E. coli. Watch them coming out here. Here comes some E. coli. Stop right there. Those guys, I mean, they can whip it. Because usually E. coli have anywhere from four to ten flagella, and they wrap around each other, and they can make that thing move. And I don't, I don't want you to get lost here. My wife, when she heard this first, said, you lost me. I don't want to lose you. E. coli are swimming in your gut, may I say it that way, right now. Thousands of them. They're part of your biome. You couldn't survive without them. And they've got little flagella making them swim that if they didn't have, you'd be dead. Does that make it real? And their flagellum have a motor that's incredible. So let's keep going. There they are swimming around, so don't, remember, don't forget, you got them. And now we're going to go to a cartoon. Keep going. There we go. Here is one of those E. coli bacteria blown up a little bit, and here's the flagellum coming out of it. You may have noticed this one has four. Stop right there just a second. Don't forget, here's the, the one-celled organism. Here's the flagellum connecting to the cell wall right there. And down inside is a motor. 
that makes this thing flip around. Okay, are you with me? Now let's watch. Keep going. There's a nice hook here that connects to the cell wall, and this is the filament up here that actually does the flopping around. But these two are critically important, and now we're going to go down inside the cell wall, see the walls here, and then here is the basal body of that motor made up of lots of different parts moving around at an amazing speed. Stop right there. Let me just make a comment. This thing can move, class, at up to 17,000 rotations per minute. And that'll make the filament rotate at up to 1,000 times per minute. And another fascinating thing that I don't think you specifically mentioned, but when that light hits that bacteria and causes it to change the direction of the flagellum, it makes it, instead of rotating counterclockwise, it makes it rotate clockwise. You know how long that takes once the light hits the right spot? One quarter of a revolution. And it's gone from this direction to that direction at a thousand per second per minute. Pardon me. Instant. In response to light. That's how these lectures tie together tonight. Let's go on. You got a rod, you got rings, you got a Stator here, stop right there. The stator is connected to the peptidoglycan layer right here to stabilize this thing. Look, folks, if you've got something rotating 17,000 times in a minute, it's going to shake, isn't it? And probably rotate loose. No, it's stabilized, connected by the stator to this middle layer, so it stabilizes. Keep going. There's the stator. There's the rotor. Now stop right there. I apologize to the flagella. There's chemistry behind every bit of that that I haven't told you. Harvard professor Howard Berg physical chemist, said this is the most efficient machine in the universe. Because it does all the stuff that it does in microseconds using almost no energy. If we could ever learn, class, to do one-tenth of what little bacterial flagellum does, we wouldn't have any energy issues. So you know what Dr. Tour is trying to do? Figure out how those things work so we can use it. Can I pause just a moment? He's taken one of those nano cars and he's taken the wheels off because that motor now will go 3,000 times per second. He's making it drill. He's put a drill on the end of it. And he's sending that little nano car into cancer cells and drilling a hole in them and killing them. Is that neat? He's using this nanoengineering to help medicine and doing a lot of other things. He's probably got 15 or 20 um, patents in the last couple of years. He's an incredible person. And you know what he says? I'm trying to let God do amazing things through me. 
don't tell me that belief in God destroys science. It makes it come alive. All right, here's the thing you've got to remember. Besides all the complexity of that machine, which is better than any outboard motor you'll ever have, men, the cell builds it. Every time a bacterial cell divides, they do not make the flagellum in the division. It's rebuilt from the bottom up. It takes about 20 minutes. And here's a picture of how it happens. Of course, it's a picture. Keep going. Because the first thing it builds is the fly-up protein, 26 copies of it, makes a circle called the MS ring. Keep going. Then you got the fly G proteins and the fly M and N proteins that make the other portions of the rings down here. And then you start building the rod up through the middle. And it builds a cap that helps you now punch through these two cell walls. Pause right there just a second. Of course, the stator is being built at the same time. Folks, all of this happens in order from bottom to top. How in the world does it do that? It's all built into the instructions that the DNA gives to the protein so they manage the time of everything. And I have an article here, 68 pages, that will explain to you the chemistry of how they build a flagellum motor. The chemistry. If you're interested, you can't have mine but I'll give you the reference. Keep going. So here we go. This thing is going to drill through the middle layer and the outer layer as it builds this rod. And did you notice? Stop right there. These rings form immediately. They form bushings and stabilization. And each one is a separate protein from the ones below it. And so now it's cut through, stabilized, and you throw away that one. Keep going. There's the L and the P ring. And you build a new cap to build the hook. Why is that important? Stop right there. Because this is a different protein than the rod. So it's got to have a different cap. And the cap leads it so that when you finish building the hook class, it is exactly 55 nanometers long. And if it's longer than that, it doesn't work. They've done experiments that demonstrate if it gets longer than 55 nanometers, it doesn't work. And if it's shorter than 55 nanometers, it doesn't work. How in the world does it do that, class? Proteins! I should have had you answering. There's a protein that somehow times that measuring thing so that it stops precisely 55 nanometers. Keep going. And when the hook is finished at exactly 55 nanometers, this cap is, is thrown out. And by the way, it's recycled. And then you have to have some junction proteins, which we'll not even talk about. And then you've got to have another cap to build the filament. And this one is incredible. incredible. Stop right there. This is called twinkle toes by us. And if you want to read a fascinating account of that, get the book, The Edge of Evolution by Michael Behe. 
There's an appendix devoted just to this, assembling the bacterial flagellum. And can I just read you a little bit, class? The mismatch is not some mistake. It's part of an elegant design of an assembly system. Can you see? How many legs does she have? Can you tell? Twinkle toes? Keep going for just a little bit. Let's see if we can figure out how many legs. One, two, three. Keep going. There's one back there and one back there. Stop. There's exactly five because it goes with these. One, two, three, four, five. You see that? She's got five legs. When you're building this filament, there's exactly 11 spaces. Five goes into 11, doesn't go in there. Because there's always one empty spot. Right? So as she twinkles around, each protein comes out the empty spot. And they're exactly identical copies of this protein, different from any other rest of them. So the protein's coming up through the middle, and as Twinkle Toes spreads them around, one will go this way, one that way, one that way, one that way, in an exact pattern, because Twinkle Toes is exactly designed. As a copy of the flagellum protein is pushed down to the hollow tube to be added to the growing end of the filament, it's prevented from floating out in its face by the filament cap. The cap allows the flagellum time to unfold into its functional shape, and then it directs it to fill the empty space of the growing filament. No mismatch. It actually directs the protein to the correct available position. And as the flagellum fills the pro proper vacant position, the pentagonal cap rotates so that the next available slot is now in position to be filled. To do this, Twinkle Toes lifts one of its legs and moves it. Now let's watch. Because they're going to speed it up. Class, that filament can be up to 30,000 protein units long. So let's get moving here. Way too slow. Go, Twinkle Toes. I'm in awe. That's a little one-celled organism swimming around in your gut. There are multiple protein processes. Each protein is complex and suited for its function. I would say designed for its function. Each machine is highly sophisticated, intricate, dynamic, and elegant. And these machines are spontaneously self-assembled. Folks, not only do you have to have the motor, you have to have a factory that builds it that somehow evolved by natural causes. And there are thousands of them at a really big cell. So what's the better explanation, class? That they were produced by the blind forces of physics through numerous successive slight modifications produced by random variation acted upon by natural selection. That's Mr. Dawkins' explanation. It's a story, class. It doesn't touch top side or bottom of the truth. Or were they designed by a supremely intelligent grand designer? 
whom I admit science cannot study directly because you can't observe the supernatural. But can you observe things that point to it? In incredibly convincing ways? Yes, you can. And this book says, if you don't, you have no excuse. So that's my lesson for tonight. And if you haven't learned by now, I can't keep it within an hour. It's impossible. And for me, that's partly because there is no way you can give proper honor to God and not at least give you some details. I hope you leave here tonight bowled over by the majesty of what God has made. And John, the 14th chapter, says Jesus' words, If you believe in God, which I hope you do and will, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and were not so, I would have told you. And I thought Todd's point so clearly this evening from Luke 12. You see, the na- you see nature, but you don't see me, Jesus said. Don't miss Jesus, folks. The Son of God, of whom the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in me should not perish but have everlasting life. And when Jesus left this earth after giving his life for us and being resurrected from the dead on the third day, after appearing to his disciples for 40 days, he taught them many things about the kingdom, and he sent them out into the whole world to say, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. So we never want to leave an assembly like this in a church building without inviting anyone that's here who wants to become a Christian tonight. Having become in awe of God, you should be more in awe of what he's done for us, that he loved us so much that he gave us his only begotten son. So we're going to have a song, and we'll stand and sing. Yeah, let's go.